Content warning, this podcast contains mentions of homophobia, transphobia, some incidents of violence, systematic oppression, and a very brief mention of the HIV epidemic. Hi everyone, my name is Hannah, pronouns they, them. Thanks again for checking in with Queer Sounds. Today our guest all the way from Indonesia to celebrate the start from Ramadan, it's Haritz from the Queer Indonesia Archives. Welcome. Hi Hannah, thank you for having me. Uh, everyone, my name is Haritz and my pronouns are Hide. Uh, yeah, and I'm very glad to be invited here to Queer Sounds and to talk with you. How are you doing today? What have you been up to? Oh, just just working really. Today I had an online call marathon. I had uh, an online focus group discussion at 2 until 5 and then I had half an hour break and then I went to a webinar that ran until uh, 7.30 in the evening and then I had my dinner and then I went straight to here. So uh, people have been saying that the pandemic killed social life but turn out you could be just as busy. <laughs> All right. So your day job, um, I've written down NGO art of uh, advocacy. I'm, I bet there are a whole bunch of different things missing out there still. So what, what is it that you do in your day job? Oh, um, right now I'm in a project where I interview various musicians from different parts of Indonesia and um, we gather data about what are the obstacles that uh, they are having in creating music in their hometowns and uh, is there any government regulations that uh, how do you say make it hard to um, let's say uh, make concert or play in public spaces things like that and uh, we're just creating a plan like a sort of a research and a plan to do advocacy in those areas, that's what we're doing right now. And uh, the focus group discussion that I had earlier today was uh, one of that we we talked from, uh, we talked with many uh, musicians uh, from different, like different islands. And it's interesting because there's so much going on on different parts with uh, different problems, but at the end it falls to Sorry? From the way it sounds, from the way it sounds, uh, it's like you're doing what a booking manager could potentially do, but more from like an academic standpoint. Is that is that correct? Yeah, we're doing a research, so it's a little bit academical, and there are plans to publish this research after it's done. Uh, but um, for the organization, for my work, uh, exactly, uh, the research will be used as a base for advocacy work so yeah what exactly is it that you mean by advocacy work like what's what's the general goal here uh, the general goal there is to make sure that the government uh, passes laws and regulations that doesn't stifle uh, musicians and artists in general the art ecosystem we also covered visual arts uh, literature theater things like that all right 
So do you have any 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 preferences? <clears throat> like, have you had the chance to work with some of your favorite artists, maybe? Oh, oh sadly not yet, uh, because I joined this work uh, last year. I went back to Jakarta after finishing my study study in Sydney, Australia this August. I went straight back home and I got the job, but up until today, I'm still working remotely. And to be honest, uh, <laughs> most of the big star artists aren't into organizing with NGOs, uh, especially in the big cities. Uh, so mostly we work with real uh, traditional musicians or uh, musicians in uh, more provincial towns uh, because they need more help there. Usually big musicians in big cities, they already have enough money from their commercial work so they don't care what the governments are doing. So mostly we work with, you know, people who need our help. All right, let's get some music up in here because we're talking about music already. I'm loving it. Storybook Children yes. is track number one by Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood. You've got your world I've got mine It's a shame Two grown-up worlds That will never be the same Why can't we be Like storybook children Running through the rain Hand in hand Across the meadow Why can't we be Like storybook children Storybook Children, a track from 1968, if I remember it correctly. Yeah, it's an old song. <laughs> Maybe it's quite weird for someone my age to put that track here. Ah, hell no. I mean, people have brought in on older tracks than that. Um, ah, good. I think the oldest track we've had on was like some opera from the 1800s. So, you know... We cross, we're, 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 we're crossing centuries here. Cool. So, yeah, Nancy Sinatra and Lee Hazelwood, Storybook Children. Tell us, Haritz, where did you, why did you pick this one? So, I grew up, uh, when I grew up, both my parents worked and my grandma used to take care of me a lot. We live in uh, the same city, so... Uh, after daycare, uh, she would pick me up and we walk to her, ha her house or sometime uh, we get in her car and we drove around the town or to another town. Uh, she was quite the traveler and she always plays uh, a lot of oldies song and this is one of the songs that she used to play a lot. So every time I hear this, uh, it reminds me of her and my childhood memories. All right, that makes sense. Was this um, was was this the only thing that she played, or or, or are we talking multiple uh, artists in the same genre? Um, 
multiple artists in the same genre, but I forgot mostly who they are. I know there's like Frank Sinatra in there or yeah, and maybe Eddie James or uh, Chet Baker, but I don't know why uh, this song uh, always hits it the most for me. It's It sounds so sad and so nostalgic for, you know, things that never happened because the storybook children, they're fictions. Right. Was it uh, just the music she happened to like or was that her her goal to set out on actual like musical upbringing? Uh, I think she had a, an artistic uh, childhood. Uh, my family, uh, we're Muslims, but my mother's side of the family is, how do you say it, more, more secular, I guess. Uh, and she always said that when she was a kid in the 30s, she always participate in this church place where she played baby Jesus and she was really you know proud of that <laughs> so that's that's funny and I think her father I never met him uh, he was in an orchestra or something not a western violin orchestra but uh, more like a traditional music ensemble right so you uh, do you play any instruments yourself um, <laughs> this sounds really stereotypical, but my parents made me study piano for like, since I was nine until I was 20, I guess. They made me go every week. Uh, but this is a lesson for all parents out there. Don't make your kids do things because they will hate it. And although I still love music, I listen to music a lot. I just hates playing the piano right now because ugh, that just wasn't for me all right fair fair enough fair enough so um you told me um you well, you just mentioned you're from a muslim family even though like you're not really active in that part yourself right now um so yep. what's do, do you have any fond childhood memories or maybe like specific songs you remember being played during uh, Ramadan or um, I don't know at the end of it yep uh, so Ramadan uh, for uh, listeners who don't pray to Mecca five times a day growing up uh, Ramadan is that one month uh, 28 29 days uh, where uh, Muslims don't eat they don't drink uh, they fast practically from sunrise to sunset so and it really depends on where you are, how long that is. Uh, in Indonesia, it's mostly like from 4.30 a.m. until 6, and uh, we just don't eat. Uh, songs, huh? During that time, uh, mostly <laughs> we play religious song, like a bit. Uh, the genre changes from time to time. I remember when I was a kid, it was more... Uh, a bit more Middle Eastern uh, oriented. It's more more like that. But as time goes, uh, it becomes just like pop or rock genre, but with religious lyrics. But there are also more traditional uh, form of genre. Uh, there is this one genre, a bit like barbershop quartet. Yeah. 
from from what you're telling me right now it kind of sounds like you're not really having any specific examples that come to mind because you know no. um, which i understand why should there like it's just a general family get together you'll just put on whatever you can put on right yep there is this one old classic though uh it's a bit like uh it's a bit like jiggle bells or something like that a lot of artists play that song they have rendition and it goes like a bit like selamat hari lebaran minal aidin wal faizin i i don't even know what it's called formally every time everyone just said oh yeah that's that selamat hari lebaran song uh, and everyone had their own cover for it right let's dive in the history a bit further because um you uh as as someone from the queer indonesia archives are a huge history nerd and you know we can talk about your personal yep. anecdotes forever but i feel like where the true story is is in the the general history and i feel like that should be highlighted as well so um okay. if we're going to talk about queer history in indonesia what are we talking about let's 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 start in um let's let's start past colonial indonesia like say 1940s because you've mentioned uh, in a conversation we had earlier, that after Indonesia became independent, they made the active decision not to carry over any homophobic laws, which is interesting. Yeah, um, so for the most part of modern Indonesian history, like up until the 80s, I guess, the LGBT groups were mostly ignored, left alone, or denied that they even existed. <laughs> Uh, there are uh, sources, like um, verified sources, that uh, trans women are uh, were active as spies and agents during the Indonesian struggle for independence uh, during the late 40s. Uh, so that's one of the more positive, uh, how do you say, that sounds like of... that sounds like a fucking movie made. Like someone should just make a movie about a bunch of Indonesian trans women bonding together, kind of like an Indonesian version of Charlie's Angels, but trans. Yes, and set in the forties. Right. Oh, that sounds so badass. Somebody called Netflix. But continue. <laughs> uh, but after. I think during late 60s when the, you know the sexual revolution happened people start really paying attention to the LGBTs and uh, actually the first uh, LGBT organization in Indonesia was uh, how do you say initiated by the government itself the mayor of Jakarta at that time sorry not mayor the governor of Jakarta at that time uh, created an organization for the city's uh, trans woman. I don't know why, but uh, people have been saying that there's a longer history of trans woman in Indonesia, even predating colonialism, but I'm not really sure on that. Uh, but uh, trans woman has been the most visible uh, part of the LGBT community in Indonesia uh, up until, say, late 80s when the AIDS pandemic arrived here uh, and, and people start really paying attention to the gay men. 
<clears throat> All right, but yeah, it's I mean, um, so Indonesia, like the when you're talking about trans women, are you talking about trans women specifically, or is it just a loose translation of the varia? Loose translation of the varia. Um, I don't, I don't really know the uh, the preferred term for the whole part of the community right now because uh, some older generation still prefers being called varia, while the younger generation. Uh, prefers being uh, to label themselves as trans women. So I, I when I speak English, I just use trans women to get, you know, because it's easier easier for the global community to understand it. Right. Okay. Yeah. No. I was just thinking. You know, um, last week uh, or last episode, I had a conversation with Neil, who, from an Indian perspective, has a similar history. Right. So you know, trans women being mm. like a cultural concept or like a cultural group but no actual trans women and they were very strict about you know the, the yeah. Vishra are not trans women so you know i didn't want to make the same mistake here so um from there you already mentioned everything changed in the 80s and from what you've sent me and all of the other links i found everything looked pretty similar like if you look at the the, the pictures from there like you had some beauty pageants, some some people in the most outrageous, wonderful outfits. Like the the entire zine culture in in the underground movement type of type of thing. Even the same, even even the same fucking logos. Like the 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 pink triangles that you had back in the eighties that kind of gotten out of folks since then. Everything was way more. Um, it it it's 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 part of the same movement. It's not like those two things. Def, um, developed separately from each other, which is weird because you know you never think about Indonesia like all of those those two different countries kind of get like it gets separated like they're not included in the conversation when it comes to global queer um, uh, queer emancipation. How do you what do you have to say about the eighties? Like, please don't hold back. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's really different from the uh, Waria groups in the 60s where the government tried to provide the Waria with some kind of uh, framework to organize themselves. Um, the 80s when the first lesbian and gay movements appeared, it was a collective action uh, from the community itself. And how do you say this? Uh, I think there is a consciousness that uh, in the West, in the wider world, uh, at that time, that there's <clears throat> a global uh, LGBT movement, and people in Indonesia at the time, the queers in Indonesia at the time, they tried to seize the moment and uh, create their own movement. Why it is not as talk as much uh, right now as I think. Uh, things changed after uh, the late 90s. Uh, we were uh, having a regime change and weirdly it's we're transitioning from a dictatorship to a democracy. Uh, but after we went to democracy, uh, the, me- uh, the hard uh, the hard right, the far right activists start to uh, attack the gays because during the dictatorship uh, the far right were also suppressed as the gays uh, so as long as we don't uh, criticize the government 
uh, we will not be uh, how do you say persecuted. So the LGBT movement. But but yeah. for the record, in back in like the the eighties and seventies, things in Indonesia actually seemed pretty chill for 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 queer people. Is that is that assumption correct, or am, am I just completely uh, completely wrong on this one? Um, compared to let's say 2015 or 2016 yes it was quite chill but uh, for a bigger part of Indonesia it was not chill at all because the dictatorship uh, which went from 1965 to 1998 uh, it's really uh, you don't have elections you don't have uh, well you have election but it's sham it's not a direct election it's Uh, it's a sham. Uh, you have a lot of political prisoners. Uh, you have no media uh, freedom, no press freedom. Uh, the gays and lesbians and trans folks and L- and queer people in general were left alone, as long as they don't criticize the government. Because, uh, oh, you're Dutch, not American. Because the dictatorship was propped up by the American government. In the 60s, uh, the, the, so during the 60s, Indonesia really got really got close with the Soviets, and of course, the Amer- uh, the Americans were like, "Oh, we cannot have that. Let's uh, stage a coup." And the Americans stage a coup, uh, and then they propped up the dictatorship, and so the dictator uh, to put on a nice face to the Americans, uh, and during that time, uh, the civil rights movement was in full swing. Uh, it's also alright, yeah. So they left the gays alone and the queers alone. So yeah, so um, people were able to do whatever they wanted to do. Like, like also like compared to other countries, being queer wasn't criminalized or anything as long as they were like chill with the dictator and they were able to do whatever they wanted to do, right? Yes, and to be honest, Indonesian culture is not really. Uh, culturally like indonesians uh, we don't have uh how do you say we don't really realize that queer people are there <laughs> we didn't realize that indifference yeah. still lingers on a bit like people are aware uh, people are aware queer people are there but you know sometimes like yeah they're so far hidden away under a rock that they need some active reminding that queer people exist yeah oh okay Uh, yeah, but it kind of changes after the 2000s because. Uh, uh, okay, no. If you're gonna if you're gonna talk uh, further about the further about the future, we'll get into that. We'll get into that. Um, okay. Yeah, no. I just specifically want to. Are there are there some last things you want to say about about the 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 80s or uh, 60s, 70s, 80s before we move on to track number two? I think it's important to um, remember that although. Uh, queer people were left alone under the dictatorship uh, their freedom is not real because uh, of course it's still a dictatorship people get disappeared all the time uh, you could get your uh, not citizenship you get you could get like, your identity being made illegal for not for speaking the wrong thing or voting the wrong candidate so uh, although it's important to remember this, although the 
the queer people were left alone, they're also not free because they're not free citizens. Right. From there, let's let's talk about uh, let's let's get into track number two. After which, we'll continue this most interesting uh, conversation about uh, queer history in Indonesia uh, with with the '90s zeros and from there on further. But first, track number two. It's Lagu Putih. Am I pronounce Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, it's Lagu Putih, a white song. All right, that was pretty close. Um, by, you are pretty close. By uh, Guru Sukarno Putra. Putra. Right, perfect. There we go. first heard this track I took it and dragged it straight into my disco playlist um, yes, I, I, really I enjoyed good. it so much um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try this again I'm gonna try this again um, Guru Sukarno Putra uh, a song yep, from you got it right thank you um, a track from 1980, so it only makes sense to play this now after we talked so much about the 1980s in Indonesia. Um, yep. So uh, we talked about um, what the the regime was at the time, and you mentioned like this artist. I wasn't familiar with it, obviously, but this is the son of the president, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, he is the son of the our first president, the one that got cooped and. Um, he's unmarried, and we know that he always lives with young men uh, who are, you know, he's, he's an artist. He directs theater shows, he creates music, uh, he creates dances, and up until now, and, you know, uh, he trained young men, and the young men live with him. So it goes without saying that it's he's a bit of a queer icon no one calls him directly that oh hey you're a queer icon but we just know 
Um, you you mentioned um, in in your email to me, like specifically, you said that this person uh, single-handedly created the Indonesian brand of camp. Could you could you explain that a little bit further? Uh, yes, the Indonesian brand of camp. Uh, that song was uh, one of the primary example. You got a very uh, how do you say? It's kind of like grand with. A lot of different, uh, different ornamental instruments playing, and it's a bit inspired by traditional music. And uh, Guru, uh, it's he's, he doesn't really create them now, but uh, up until early two thousands, he creates musicals, and it's a bit like you know Broadway, but uh, more Indonesian. A lot of batik and a lot of gamelan. Uh, and it's very um, distinct, a very distinct style because it kind of mixed, uh, how do you say, uh, grand gaiety, for lack of a better term, uh, with uh, traditional elements and uh, kind of a patriotism. He created this song called uh, Cinta Indonesia, I Love Indonesia. And uh, if you have time to hear it later, you will... Uh, it's a very camp song. Uh, it was sung by this lady uh, because Guru he don't really sing. He makes songs for his muses. Very artist. I always say to my friends and to myself, if Indonesia one time will have a pride parade, uh, that song will be the you know the main theme song because it's very gay and very patriotic. Right. So um, from there, what's your what's your own queer experience like? Um, for example, how do you uh, experience gender? Uh, for me, I don't really uh, have how do you say internal struggle with my gender identity because I always you know identify as a man. Uh, but of course, growing up as a gay man, um, I get called. Uh, the F, not the F slur. No one says the F slur in the nineties. They don't even know it exists yet. I get called uh, Benji or Benchong a lot. Uh, that's uh, a term for you know. It could be used to describe a trans woman, a waria, or it could also be used to describe a feminine man. Uh, so I got called that a lot. Uh, I never get picked on the football team in elementary school <laughs> oh right yeah those little, um, those little subtle subtle you know, little, not the so subtle aggressions yeah the classics exactly oh there is this one story uh that links to my religion and my manliness i guess uh so i went to i went to an islamic school during my el uh, elementary school like first to sixth grade i uh, my parents put me in an islamic school and we had to do the azan, the play, call of prayers. The boys were meant to do so that uh, rotationally from time to time. Uh, I remember this because it's the first time uh, I fought back to the police. So it was my turn to do the azan. And after that, uh, there's this one kid. Honestly, now that I remember it, I have more friends than bullies, uh, fortunately. Uh, but there's this one kid who always bullies me and calls me sissy and things like that. And after I did Azan, uh, he said, Hey, uh, we should get someone else to redo the Azan because, you know, girls can't do Azan. It has to be the boys. And 
I don't know what happened, but the next thing I know, I was like busy. Uh, my hand are like pushing his head to the floor and making him like bumping his head to the floor. That was really nasty. I am afraid. How did that happen? Uh, but yeah, he cried and he never bothered me again. You just you just kind of snapped and pushed a Billy in the face. Yeah. I mean, I'm not I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm I'm not gonna say you made the wrong move there. Like sometimes a homophobe needs a punch <laughs> in the face. Like uh, I, I've 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 been there. So um, assuming this all happened in the '90s, early 2000s, let's talk mm-hmm. about the more broader sense of what Indonesia was, uh, what was what was happening in Indonesia in the '90s, 2000s. Because, um, as you mentioned, the dictatorship, uh, the the reform era, so to speak, was in 1998. Uh, from yep. there, a more uh, far right, more traditionalist, more queer phobic uh, government took place. What what happened? How did we get here? Um, of course, uh, the far right movement doesn't happen overnight. Uh, So in the 1998, the dictatorship fell and all the groups that had been repressed finally um, had freedom, has freedom. And unfortunately, one of those groups were uh, Muslim fundamentalists. Uh, they were really heavily oppressed during the, the, the dictatorship. Like we had Uh, rules that a woman couldn't wear the hijab if uh, they want to work in the government or study in government schools. So a bit like France today, but it made less sense because Indonesia is the biggest Muslim country in the world. Uh, right. I'm not saying that what the French did was sense senseful. It was also senseless, but not the point. Uh, so um, after the reformation. Uh, because of the newfound freedom, this fundamentalist group have access and they have the resources to attack the queer groups. And that's what they did. They attacked the queer groups. Uh, the first attack on a gay party happened in Yogyakarta in 1999, not really long, like less than one year after the dictatorship fell. And uh, the police were called, but uh, the thing with Indonesian government, the thing with Indonesian society in general is, if you make enough people angry with you, uh, not even the government can protect you. <laughs> And uh, at that, from that point on, moment on, uh, like the government just really let the far rights. Uh, Act, uh, the far right groups attack queer people because um, most Indonesians are against uh, homosexuality and queerness in general. So if an incumbent government uh, stands up for queer people, it will reflect it will reflect badly on them on the polls. Like people will be less likely to vote for them. Yep, if. A lot of people don't want good thing to happen. Good thing won't, won't happen. <laughs> Which all eventually boiled down to what... And this... I really don't like this name, but it does kind of describe the homophobic place it comes from. 
um like the 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 homophobic context it comes from the 2016 gay panic like what's what what are we supposed to think of that oh yeah i think that's how do i say this that's the culmination of the far rights and uh fundamentalist individuals uh, getting positions in the government um so there's been a lot of uh sorry uh, just let me know if the sound of my cats get in to the recording because she just come up and set off my lap knowing my audience they'll love a little bit of a kitty noise in the background kitty noises are good yep okay cool uh so uh <laughs> the 2016 gay panic it happened because after uh 15 years of uh the fundamentalist group uh slowly getting their foothold in the indonesian society and the indonesian government in general uh they they finally uh, tried to do this thing where they uh submitted a law to outlaw homosexuality made homosexuality illegal there was protest of course but um, the f- the voice for queerness is uh, really small compared the uh, you know the the people who are homophobic um, I think there's a poll by Gallup or Pew Center I guess uh, which say like 87% of Indonesians are against homosexuality uh, during that year the number uh, thankfully uh, are now like a bit less only 80% of Indonesians are against homosexuality now like down 7% good progress I guess 80% is still a whole fucking lot it is really really too much Uh, but yeah the law didn't get passed it went right to the high court but the high court said that it was not their uh, rights to make the decision and so they dismissed the submission of the law and not long after the politician who was in charge of submitting the law he got arrested for corruption and he's I don't know if he's still in jail or not but He went to jail and people don't really, you know, try to make homosexuality illegal until now. Um, And I think, (laughs) I know this sounds really sad, but I think it's a good sign that after one and a half year of pandemic, no one blamed the gays yet for it. Because usually, you know, volcanic eruption, oh, it's the gays, uh, earthquake, it's the lesbians, they cause the earthquake. I mean, lesbians, really lesbians can cause earthquakes by walking into the room and have everyone else tremble by the sight of their power. <laughs> um, it, it does describe how low the bar is set, right? If, like, a, a, yes. a, something bad has happened and no one has blamed the gay people yet. It's like, okay, fi- fine, we'll take this as a win. Count our blessings. But, <laughs> oh boy. Um, but on a oh lighter boy. note, like, some of, the, some of the organizations that were founded in the 80s still exist today, right? Right, right. Uh, Gaya Nusantara, uh, it's the, I think, still the most, one of the most active uh, gay organization. Uh, they are still around. And of course, there's like uh, Perwakos, uh, Persatuan Waria Kota Surabaya, organization of uh, warias in Surabaya. 
and uh, there's still one or two organizations in Jakarta that uh, originates in the 80s but um, I think the challenge for those organizations uh, are um, the founders are getting old and there has been really little uh, how do you say this regeneration of uh, the people who run the organizations uh, this is not to say that there's no new activists there are new activists there are a lot of new organizations right now but um, they're just not going to the older organizations i don't really know why since uh, i'm just an archivist archivist i don't run i don't do the organizations i think that's um, a pretty but, common thing though like i think that's a global thing oh. like the the uh, i mean I've, I've i've went to some reading in the netherlands as well with uh, people mm-hmm. who were who were there in the 80s and they're like yeah well the problem is or well part of the problem is uh every generation is trying to reinvent the wheel like back in the 80s we had one thing and like social change comes from that but when it comes to like keeping up and upholding um like old organizations that there is just no one to take over um like they they have a hard time finding successors and from a certain standpoint it makes sense like i mean yep. if if there is one group who wants to bring down institutions it's us so you know <laughs> yeah it's just our thing to run institutions down. <laughs> so, you know, if if, yeah. uh, uh, if if an old household name becomes an institution, then, yeah, we're not going to take over, even though maybe in this case we should. Um, because that sure. way also, like, lovely memories will, will get lost. But um, uh, let's uh, take the time to think about where do we want to aim our queer activism and where do we want the future to go. And, um, like, say, for example, uh, yeah, no, I'm trying to segue smoothly into this track, but it's not going to happen. Here's Franz Ferdinand with Michael. Ferdinand. I don't know. There's there a safe bet. Like, whenever you go to a, a festival, it doesn't matter where you are, but it, 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 it's, there is always a band like Franz Ferdinand playing there somewhere around 4 p.m. And 
everyone always enjoys it. Like no matter how often you see Franz Ferdinand, they just stay fun. Um, those are like in the same they're, category. They're a classic. They're a classic, yeah. exactly. Like I feel like they were they're a little bit in the safe in the same category as like, you know, the Wombats, the Cooks, and all of those those mid two thousands indie bands, and they're still very welcome guests at whatever festival. So I'm glad you picked them. Um, but why did they're still did... around a lot in Europe? Franz Ferdinand? Oh yeah, absolutely. The last yeah. time I saw them play oh, was cool. like. Um, Uh, I want to say 2017, 2019, 2018, mm. around that time. Um, and, you know, it was exactly the situation that I just described. Like, they were playing somewhere around 4 p.m. And everyone just having a great time. Because, you know, if, you, uh, if you're a festival director and you need to put together your timetable, putting three new undiscovered indie bands in a row, like, you can listen to Black Meaty for an hour but if you're gonna put three black yeah. movies in a row like sometimes you just need a friends ferdinand to break it up a little bit and just have a little bit of a mindless <laughs> dance party and, and 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 chuck some beers with your friend um yes but why did you why did you go for friends ferdinand today oh uh, i went to their show in 2018 i guess mid 2018 uh they toured asia and went to jakarta And I've been a, a fan since I was 14, I guess. They went to Indonesia sometimes earlier, I guess in 2009. But uh, I didn't went that time because I, I, I lived in another city. So uh, yeah, I took that chance. My partner, he bought me a ticket as a surprise because uh, he knew I liked the band. And when I got there, uh, I accidentally met with Uh, old friends whom I've lost touch with, friends from high school or junior high school, and we grew up listening to Franz Ferdinand, and we just had such a great time during the concert. Uh, they even, uh, sadly, because not so many people bought the ticket, so during the middle of the concert, it's right before this song actually, the organizers, they uh, removed the barrier, and we could went right straight to near the stage and it was really fun uh yeah i think that was one of the most fun uh concert i've been uh right after muse i think i saw muse in 2008 my dad took me as a dream and it was awesome right so um from what i've gathered here like you're you uh you mentioned Franz Ferdinand, obviously and just now i heard you say muse like Um, there the the mid two thousands Brit pop type of uh, like the second wave of Brit pop type of stuff. How did that came to be? Because or well, let's start at the beginning. Actually, how did your musical taste develop? Um, so my dad listens to a lot of Genesis and Pink Floyd, but uh, I don't I don't really pick up on that. Uh, my mom, however, uh, she listens to a lot of Queens and Beatles, uh, so I picked up on that. I listened. I was a huge Freddie Mercury fan, still am, and I don't listen to Be the Beatles as much as I do back then. But I listen to them a lot uh, at school. Of course, I listen to the Indonesian rock, Indonesian pop, Indonesian indie music. Uh, but in high school and junior high school, I was friends with. 
uh, the band kids. Uh, I played uh, the piano, the keyboard for a band. So thanks, mom and dad. I guess the piano lessons were useful uh, <laughs> at the end. Uh, so, uh, and we played a lot of Brit rock songs because that was the thing that popular in the school during that time. We played uh, Blur. Uh, Oasis, of course, Blur. and I love Blur so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and of course, Frank Ferdinand. Sometimes we played Muse, uh, and also played Weezer. I think we played Weezer once, uh, but then uh, I I finished high school and I went to college. I went to an art school, and there I. My friends introduced me to a lot of J-pop and K-pop groups because their visuals at the time, as it's now, it's really fresh. It's really you know well produced, and art school kids are all about the visuals, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it's a bit weird because on one hand I listen to uh, things like uh, Ben Sebastian, uh, Flip Foxes, really quite foxy stuff, and then uh, I grew up listening uh, to. Britpop and Britrock, but now I also listen to K-pop and J-pop. But I guess it's, uh, it's alright. It's really cute that I have an eclectic, is that the word, or a varied musical taste. All right, hmm. cool. Um, so before we uh, move on to. The last track, like what I also want to question, like, do you feel like your taste in music, yeah, your your taste in music has it been influenced by your your queer identity? Um, I think at the end I just pick songs. Um, uh, lately more and more, I te- tend to pick songs instead of artists. Uh, I blame Spotify for this because we listen to songs through playlists, not albums anymore. Uh. So it's become more fragmented, my taste, I think. Uh, but uh, uh, I think my queerness, I think queerness affects my musical taste. In I always relate with songs about unrequited love and the feeling of not fitting in. So oh, I I had a huge emo phase. I I listened to uh, my Chemical Romance and Panic at the Disco a lot too. Uh, Uh, but as I grew up and I came out and I met a lot of other queer people, especially from other gay men, I was of course introduced to the culture of stands and pop di- pop divas. I I enjoy Lady Gaga, of course, like a good gay that I am, uh, and of course Beyonce and Mariah Carey. But uh, my favorite, uh, you know. Uh, Diva woman is Carrie Jepsen. Yeah. Uh, I I was lucky enough to watch her show in Sydney, uh, and she was amazing. Um, I really like I really like her. All her song talks about you know that feeling when you're at that point in falling in love where everything uh, feels possible and uh, you're. at the brink of the relationship or you are that at that point where you just feeling euphoric with your crush and i think uh, she really captured that feelings well carly 
All right, and then moving on to the last track for today, "My Only Worry" by Arthur Sharp. What what made you select this track for now? Um, so, because of the pandemic, I rewatch a lot of TV shows that I used to watch, and this was the end credits for Flowers, a series by Channel Four. I think it's an English series. It got Olivia Colman, and I like her in. Uh, you know the crown and everything uh, so I did a rewatch and this time around I really noticed the uh, end credits because it got really uh, catchy opening you know opening tune uh, for the song so yeah that's it and I, I really enjoyed the song and I think the lyric really uh, spoke to me uh, during you know the pandemic right pandemic yeah we all had stuff to work through so in general are you more of a lyric or a melody person um i think while melody is great if the song have catchy melody or i like the melody i will like the song at first but the song songs that stays in my rotation uh most of most of them have really uh sorry most of them have lyrics that i can relate to or that I think it's really nice or really profound. So yeah, come for the melody, stay for the lyrics. Ah, right, right. You also strike me as the type of person who still collects like um, like tangible music carriers, like uh, LPCDs maybe. But you just mentioned, but you just mentioned Spotify briefly. So I think you you don't. I've got the wrong impression that you're not as much of a CD collector as I think you are. Oh, wait, you turned on um, the cam in the meantime. I'm sorry, I, I have, well, had my screen on, on my audio software. Uh, so, yeah, I, I still collect CDs, but uh, as I got a stable job now, I started to collect vinyl. Uh, well, my grandfather gave me his vinyl collection, and I slowly started adding to it. I showed you this vinyl by an Indonesian artist because this is what my partner gave me for my birthday and uh, I just finished playing it for the first time. Oh, so it's just been your birthday. Happy birthday. Oh, uh, yeah, it's yesterday actually. Yeah. Oh, no way. Happy birthday. Um, Thank you. If you're listening to this podcast and, uh, you know, let's, let's st- slowly start wrapping up. Um, if you're listening to this podcast, mm-hmm. you can follow us on uh, at Queer Sounds Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And, you know, uh, also go and wish Haritza happy birthday. Um, and if they would wish to do that, where, where would they go? Uh, you could go to my Instagram at H-R-P-S-A-T-Y-A, H-R-P-S-A-T-Y-A, if you're Indonesian. Or you could just visit the Queer Indonesian Archive uh, website, kiarchive.org. We are working on a new website, so uh, maybe when you come to the website, it will be new. Or maybe it still be the old version, but it's still good. All right. Uh, if you want to support this show financially, you could do so. Go visit patreon.com slash queersounds. Um, you can get like access to our Quirsense Discord, you can get some Quirsense stickers, a whole bunch of fun. And um, yeah, I already mentioned the Insta handles. So yeah, that's it. Thank you for listening. Here's our final track for today, My Only Worry by Arthur Sharp. In the shadows
Shorty school, I'll envelop the rest I feel awake enough to tell this It was a seminal plan A plan to pull you through I'm a ball of stress and irretrievable mess I had an angel smothered in malice She said, you're terrible, man I said, I did it for you Occupation, it's 